The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. So throughout the Summer Inn this year, we've had you guys write down questions throughout our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And um, we are going to look to answer those questions tonight. Um, And by answer, I really just mean have a conversation about it. Yesterday, we met up and got lunch and sat down and talked about the questions that have been asked. And it was just really, really awesome conversation. And um, so tonight, we are really looking to push us further in these conversations about these questions that you guys have brought to us. Um, you may not find concrete answers, but hopefully this will spur you on to have more conversations of yourself on your on your own and um, and help you to really see further into what Jesus is doing in each one of these questions that you've asked. Um, so without further ado, I think we should introduce ourselves if you don't know us. Um, now you do, but I'm I'm Chris Thurden. I'm on staff, and this is Becca. <laughs> and I'm Becca, and this is Chris. Uh, is this on? Okay, I'm Brooke. <laughs> I'm Janie. I'm on staff. Oh. I'm Ryan. I'm on staff. <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> Ryan Church. Ryan Andrews. <laughs> There you go. That's the the six of us. Um, So we're going to put these questions up on the screen, and we're going to look to kind of engage with them. Each one of us kind of tackle a question. We're going to have conversation around it. Um, And we're not just up here because we like the sound of our own voice, but um, at least a couple of us are really smart up here, and then the rest of us are going to try and... uh, (laughs) And uh, you can tell Church and Janie are the really smart ones. (laughs) And the rest of us are all right. And... um, and uh, yeah, it's just, I just want you guys to know that we're engaging in conversation and we're opening you guys up to engage in the same conversations that we're having. So uh, before we get started, Janie, would you pray for us? Sure. God, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us um, and that you reveal yourself to us every day of our faith journey. Um, we discover more about who you are um, and how you're at work in the world and in our lives. We pray that you would be with us now. Um, Pray that the words of our mouth and the meditation of all, our, all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, God. We pray for clarity um, to understand and know you more. In your holy name, amen. 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 We get that first question up there? Okay, I have the first question. <clears throat> what was the or- original intention of the Mosaic Law? And before Jesus was the law sufficient, before Jesus, comma, was the law sufficient for <laughs> salvation? <laughs> Um, okay, so first I'm going to talk about the original intention of the Mosaic Law. So Mosaic Law, we would say it's kind of like the, what, um, the Hebrew Bible would call the Torah. So it's, um, book, uh, the Old Testament includes parts of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. Um, and it's a list of like 500 laws. So it's that part of the, it's part of the Bible that you just kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, my oxen falls in the pit, whatever. Um, <laughs> so that's what we're talking about with the Mosaic Law. And um, the it's not, when we read it, we're like, what? Because it's pretty intense. But it's not meant to be legalistic, and it's not meant to be restrictive. So the original intent of the law, it, it was a good thing. It was to sketch a profile of God to the people of Israel and to push them towards righteousness and to teach them how to live as a community, as a people. 
especially in comparison to everybody else at the time. Um, when we, when we read it, it might seem a little bit brutal because something like an eye for an eye seems extreme, right? If, if you kill my son, I'll go kill your son, right? That's not what we understand, um, to be truth, but that's what eye for an eye would mean. But every other tribe around, you know, what Israel or the people groups around would not just, it wasn't an eye for an eye. If you killed my son, I would go kill your entire family. So what God was actually doing in presenting the law to Israel was here's a way to live that it demonstrates justice and holiness in a way no other people is demonstrating it in the world. So it was radically different. Child sacrifice. I mean, it was just the way that people were living was pretty brutal. Like we look at the world today and we're like, wow, the world is brutal. Like this is nothing in comparison to what Israel was living in. So they were living, the law was actually a way to live that was way different from the way everybody else was living. So the purpose of it was to point Israel towards righteousness. This is what it means to look, to live according to the way God intended. Um, and pointing them towards holiness and justice. So is the law, the, the law is not required, is, is not the means to salvation, even in the Old Testament, because the blood of Jesus, we know actually isn't just for Jesus's time moving forward. The blood of Jesus is for all time, all people, all of the universe. So the blood of Jesus extends back to Abraham and the people of Israel as well. And the way, the place that the, the law comes into this is that um, when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, which is the series we just did this summer, he was kind of talking about the law. He's giving a kind of a commentary on this Old Testament law I was just talking about. Um, but what Jesus is doing is he's pulling out the most important part of the law, which was motive, emotion, and relationship. And that was present in the Old Testament law, but nobody really understood it. They just thought it was, these are the things that you're not supposed to do. These are the things that you're supposed to do. But behind it all was, so you can have a good relationship with God, so you can have good relationship with other people. So Jesus is trying to pull out, it's about motive, it's about emotion, it's about relationship, it's about intention. That's what Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount, is demonstrating this is the purpose of the law. It's so that you can have good relationship with God and good relationship with one another. It's not a bunch of prohibition. Um, it's actually for you to have good, righteous relationship. And so the law isn't pointless. It plays a critical role in redemptive history because if we didn't have a law, we would not have recognized Jesus as the Christ, as the person who actually lives out what God intended for the world. So that's the role of the Old Testament is to point to Jesus and say, this is God, this is your salvation. Um, so that's really what, what the law does. So how do we deal with the law today? The law of the Old Testament, because we don't have a lot of oxen. I don't know about you guys, but I sold mine. But anyways, um, still have mine. Yeah. With the new, with the new covenant of Jesus, right? So the law is the old covenant in the Old Testament. With the new covenant of Jesus, the way that we deal with the law is that it is written on our hearts. That is the Holy Spirit. So we don't have to go back and memorize 600 laws. We don't have to even necessarily consider what are the things that I have to do that are right? What are the things that I'm not supposed to do to be wrong? That is what the Holy Spirit does. That's why we're convicted of sin is because the law is written on our hearts because Jesus is in our hearts with the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of transformation. The problem with the old covenant wasn't that the laws are too complicated. It was the people, right? 
the new covenant works because we have the Holy Spirit within us to help us live out the way that God would have us live um, in relationship with him and relationship with one another. And why this is so great is because um, we live in community. Like, that's what it points us to. This is how we should live with one another. And Jesus summed it up really short. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to know, like, how do we live out the law? Which is right from Deuteronomy. Yes, it's actually in the Old Testament. Um, that's how we know. That's all. <laughs> Way to I told go, you guys Jane. she's really smart. Well done. <laughs> no, I don't think anyone else has anything to add to that. <laughs> I think you kind of crushed that. Anything else you want to say? Cool. Hey, way to go. <laughs> oh, the law. Tackled. Got it. Done. Uh, next. Churchy. Oh. oh, nice. <laughs> so sweet that I get the question about freaking evil. Because I love... Dr. Evil is one of my favorite characters of all time. In fact, sometimes... Sometimes uh, at the beginning of the end, after I have everybody stand up and greet each other and nobody is sitting down, like the conversations is happening, and I'm like, you know, and nobody's listening, I'm like, come on, people, I'm the boss. I need info. Sharks, sharks with freaking laser beams attached to their heads. Is that too much to ask? Okay, and nobody ever hears it because y'all are yapping away. So Dr. Evil is one of my favorite characters of all time. Um, the question, though, that I'm dealing with has to do with kind of the real Dr. Evil. How much power uh, do the devil and demons really have? Um, another movie quote for you. Anybody here seen The Usual Suspects? Great movie from the 90s, okay, where a uh, character named, named Verbal says the, the greatest trick the, the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Uh, if we want to get a little bit more theological, those uh, there, many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote *Mere Christianity*. Uh, you know, he wrote uh, *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, and then he wrote a book called *Screw Tape Letters*, which is a dialogue between two demons. And one of the um, quotes that that he has in there is, "There are two equal and opposite errors humans can fall into about devils. One is to disbelieve their existence." The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Okay, so do you, you see you see both sides of it. Okay, and and this really exposes where where I'm at. That that to answer the question, do I believe that that evil, that demons, that the devil exists? Yes, I do. Um, but on the other hand, I would say that it really the evil, and I'll kind of use that word to kind of capture all these things. The evil really doesn't have that much power. And so why would we be too preoccupied with it? Okay, uh, let me tell you a story from when I went on world deputation. I went to Haiti in 1998, and I'm going to tell you a story that a missionary told me. Okay, I did not encounter this, but it was a... a very powerful story that stayed with me for 20 years. Um, this missionary, you know, moved to moved to town, moved to this this kind of remote part of Haiti, and was doing a a water project. Um, and the person who actually owned the land that this project was on, and and at the time probably the most influential single figure in that area, was a witch doctor. Okay, somebody who actively practiced voodoo. 
and in so doing was calling upon um, the breadth of the spiritual realm. To spare you some of the, the, the details, this missionary, as this missionary was gaining influence and taking away from, from this witch doctor, just went to the witch, witch doctor and said, you know, look, I realize I'm kind of, you know, infringing on your territory. I'm cramping your style a little bit. Probably didn't use those words, but something like it. And he, he essentially, um, asked him, why, why don't you curse me? Why don't you, you know, cast a spell on me? And what this witch doctor told the missionary was, well, he, he, the first thing he says is, well, I know you're good for the community. And really, we would say we're both here for the good of the community. But he said, then he says this, I can see the blood of Christ on your forehead. And when I see that, there's nothing I can do. Okay? Story from a witch doctor to a missionary. Now, like any good missionary, the, he turns right back to the witch doctor and says, that can be yours, right? This, that blood that you see on my forehead, you can have that too. Now, the, now here's where it would be the warning of this, of this part. That, that for this witch doctor, he had made so many, so to speak, deals with the devil that his heart was hardened to he himself being able to turn. Okay, and that's the, that. I would I would say that's an anecdote about a warning of don't dabble too much in evil because even when you know it's not as powerful, you can't turn. But the story has a redemptive end because that same witch doctor encouraged his own son to become a Christian. Okay. The the, the moral of the story is this: that that how much power do demons and the devil and evil really have? Not that much. Not as much as what those of us as Christians would say that, that we believe in, in the, the power of the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That's powerful. It's powerful, right? Um, and so uh, if we were going to go beyond anecdote, what would I point you to? I would point you to one of, first one of the stories that precedes the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is tempted three times. What do we see there? All the devil can do is tempt Jesus. The devil can't beat Jesus. All the devil can do is tempt Jesus. Of course, there's the great epic in the Old Testament of, of the devil needing to get permission to interact with Job. And the devil does all this stuff, but in the end, everything is restored. It's a story that ultimately shows the intentions of the devil, but shows the redemptive power of God. Um, you know, and then, and then probably more in between is what do we do with the fact that part of what Jesus did was go around and he and his disciples cast out demons. Now, this is the tension we live in, in a world where we're aware of mental illness, where we're aware of of addiction and all of the evil that we would observe in the world, what then do we do? Well, in one of these stories, what Jesus says, as kind of Jesus the exorcist, is these kind only come out with prayer. This is where it connects the Sermon on the Mount. If you find yourself wondering if evil is present, if, if something is the work of a demon, don't spend too much time there. 
But if you're really concerned about it, pray. And all you need to pray is the Lord's Prayer. Okay, take the Sermon on the Mount, pray that prayer. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. That prayer, in its simplicity, is more powerful than any demon. Be more concerned about the power of the gospel that would raise Jesus from the dead, the spirit that's been poured into each of us, than you are with evil. That's my answer. Snaps. <laughs> you guys have any other questions or things to add? You see why we gave them to the first question. <laughs> are we done? I'm scared. <laughs> All right. Question number three, Trey. Okay, the third question we had come in is, are there levels of sin, and are some sins worse or more severe than others? Um, first off, what I want to say is that the Bible informs us that there's no hierarchy of sin. God, In God's eyes, all sin is sin, is sin, is sin, is sin. He sees it all the same. Um, in James 2, here, there's a verse that says, if you keep the whole law but you fail in one area, you've become accountable for all of it. So God looks at sin in the general sense and that each, I mean, really each act of sin is what causes separation from us and God. So anything that you do that is sin, it's separating us and that's how he sees it. Um, so whether, yes, whether you commit sin in thought or word or deed, you're creating separation in your relationship with God. Now, Scripture tells us that we do receive this unconditional love from God, and there is no sin that can separate you from him if you've asked for forgiveness and chosen to believe in him. So coming from God's perspective, to, in God's eyes, I guess I would argue that there are no necessarily like levels of sin in the way that he looks at us, um, and nothing can keep us from him. But at the same time, when we hear that, like, oh, we're forgiven for all of our sins, I think it's easier to develop this mentality of like, oh, well, what I'm doing is not that bad if, you know, he sees it all the same anyways. Um, you know, this sin doesn't matter as much as blank or it's not impacting anything. But I would argue that I believe we really need to have an awareness of sin that we commit because of the ramifications that sin has on earthly relationships. Um, and as we think of, you know, are some sins worse than others? Yes, it is when you think about the people that are dealing with your actions. Um, I think our sin may not impact God as much because his heart towards us never changes and he's always going to be pursuing us, but our choices do directly impact the people we engage with. Um, you know, if you, maybe you say you commit what the world would maybe say is like not as big of a sin, like you lie to your parents on a Friday night about where you really were, right? Yes, you've broken trust in these relationships, but, you know, you have the opportunity to redeem yourself and work that trust back as time goes on. But say down the road and you find your, no one's going to, I hope this on no one, say you've murdered somebody, like, (laughs) you, like, that has huge ramifications on people. I mean, those, that would cause deep, deep wounds in other people's family, um, and, you know, everybody that's involved. And so I think, yes, no in, like, how God sees you, but yes in the fact that, like, some sins really do hurt people. And when I think about the reality that, you know, all people, all humans are made in the image of God, and so how we treat other people 
is also a function of how we treat God and God's heart hurts when we treat his creation poorly and we hurt his creation. And I think that, um, yeah, it does sadden his heart. Um, so I don't know. Those are what I think about. What do you guys think? I think one of the things that instead of having a hierarchy of sin where we point at everybody else and say, oh, their sin is worse than mine, it's probably more, more helpful in, as we seek Jesus to go, you know, if, if we're going to make a hierarchy, and inevitably we kind of do, what is the thing that keeps us from experiencing that? Which is a lot of what Becca, I think, was saying. But, you know, the biggest sin in your, as you see it, is whatever that thing is that is kind of your great struggle. Um, and so instead of pointing outwards, again, back to the Sermon on the Mount, there's that, that plank in the eye issue. Um, that what is it that keeps us? And that's probably the sin we need to be worried about. Yeah. And not worried about because it's been taken care of. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. What's that? That's right. <laughs> that plank thing. Any more thoughts on that question? No? Um, okay, I got number four, guys. Uh, so the next question is, when Jesus says to give to all who beg, does that mean that we should we should actually give to every beggar that we come across? That's a good question. Um, pretty sure this question developed from the text Matthew 5.42, uh, which is, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. That's where the question I believe came from. And this is definitely not the only verse in the Bible that talks about uh, giving. Um, in Proverbs, we read, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. In Hebrews, we read, do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to the Lord. Uh, in Luke, sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. These are only three. There's a bunch more. Um, the command to give. That being said, the command to give is not one that is simply stated and forgotten. It's a topic that returns multiple times to the pages of the Bible. Um, the act of giving is a form of loving our neighbor and of pu- pushing someone else, ab- pushing the interests of someone else above our own. Also, it's a form of practicing discipline uh, of not becoming attached to the things of this world. Um, and so, to answer the question, uh, do we need to give to every person that asks of us? I think the answer is yes. And I think that Jesus believes the answer is yes. Um, it's important to note that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does speak hyperbolically at times, which means that such strong exaggeration is used that um, it should be obvious to not take it literally. For example, he says, uh, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's an example of hyperbolic language. Um, but in this situation, um, I think Jesus was not speaking in hyperbolic language. I think he was speaking um, literally. He wants us to give to every person uh, that asks of us. Uh, and it's a high standard. It's a high standard that he has set for us. There will be times... Uh, when it will be difficult to give to all who ask of us. Like if all of you came to me at once right now and wanted something, that would be difficult for me to give uh, a material good to every one of you, right? I think, for me, I think that would be difficult. Um, there are plenty of circumstances we could think of where uh, giving a material good to someone might be really difficult. 
difficult. Uh, that's the cool thing, though, is that we're called to give, uh, but that doesn't mean just our money. It doesn't mean just our money. Uh, we can give plenty of other things. Food. Food is the immediate need of a human. You know and can give confidently food to someone and know, and know confidently that uh, you're helping that person out. Um, socks is another thing that uh, are valued highly among the homeless population, at least here in Seattle. Um, yeah, clean socks are, are great. Jeff Lilly, who is the president of Union Gospel Mission, one of the big, big organizations here in Seattle that fights homelessness, uh, prefers to give things such as food and socks over money because in all his research and studies and experience, uh, he knows that there's a higher per- percent chance that the food and the socks that they receive will be put to good use. Uh, and it's not our place to say, okay, I can't give this person money because I know he or she is going to use it for, you know, the vice that they're involved in, whether that's drugs or alcohol. Uh, but Jeff Lilly knows and, and told to the congregation at UPC when he preached a while ago that he, he prefers to give things that he know people uh, or the homeless can use uh, for good, for only good. Um, yeah, Jeff Lilly also speaks of other things that are considered even more important than food and money, and that's your time, your relationship, your words, uh, your prayers, you guys. Um, that's in the end, that's why we would give money or food to someone on the street in the first place is to start a relationship with them, uh, and to share with them about who Jesus Christ is. And the special thing about prayer, prayer is not just like, the last resort, oh, I'm late for my flight. I can't miss my flight. Like, I'm not going to give you anything right now. Uh, prayer is not something that we just give, you know, when we can't give in the moment. Prayer is probably the most powerful thing that we could give someone uh, in the moment if we had, you know, time in prayer. Uh, asking someone if you can pray for them that you don't even know. Like, that's that intimate, you guys. Um, so know that it's not just money that we're called to give. Um, we, we're called to give a lot of things. One of those things definitely being prayer and, yeah, the other things that were listed. Um, any other thoughts on that? Uh, I, when you think about giving, I think it's one of the biggest telltale signs of where our heart is at in the way that we give and, uh, the way that we view God. Um, kind of going back to like this idea of the law and the idea of, of Jesus being our center. Um, when we believe that God is who he says he is, we live out of a place of abundance. We believe that we are holy loved, that we are um, enough, that we're worthy. Um, when we believe the things that God says about us, that we are adopted um, children into uh, his kingdom, that we are uh, his sons and daughters, um, then we are free to give. Then giving becomes something that we do out of the abundance that we have. A lot of times uh, we don't give because we think we don't have anything to give. But as Ryan just so greatly put, like we have tons of things to give. And a lot of times the least thing we think we can give is prayer. But like you said, it's the most powerful thing we can give. And we can give that all the time because we know who our Lord and Savior is. And um, I, th- I think giving is one of those things that just shows where your heart is at really well and shows that you know whose you are. Um it's all, that's why, like, when someone asks you to, I don't know if you feel this way, but when I'm walking on the street and someone asks me to give and I say no and I'm walking away, I'm like, oh man. <laughs> I, I'm like, I know that in that moment, like, I am not, uh, viewing God, viewing myself the way God views me. I'm not living into the fact that I know I'm fully loved. Um, so yeah, like, I agree with you. The answer is yes. But I think it also shows, it reflects where our understanding of God is.
I also think just the chance to pause and engage somebody in conversation rather than to completely ignore them and walk past them, I think. For some people who might be in a place where we, you know, run into them on the streets and are begging for things, I think they believe things about who they are based on how people treat them. And I believe that if we were to stop and engage with them and treat them like they're normal and just have a conversation and, like, get to know them, like, how we would choose to honor and getting to know them, it might actually change the way that they think about themselves. If... They are worth your time. They might think that they are worth your time, and build like start to like scrape away the lies that they're like unworthy um, and stuff like that. So I think the relational piece piece is probably like more important than the giving aspects, and just to show them that I mean, we have the light of Jesus on the inside of us. Like we carry the light of Jesus, and just stopping for the one and taking the time to invest and get to know and even just know their name, I think makes a huger impact than we would think would make an impact. Um, but to put ourselves in some of their places, I think just the opportunity for conversation and for somebody to actually get to know them would, is not the norm. Um, and that's what, like, sitting on the mount, like all the things Jesus is talking about wasn't the norm. It's upside down kingdom. It's what people aren't doing. And people encounter Jesus through doing the things that aren't the norm. Um, so. And when we give to others, we're giving unto God. Like he straight up says that in the Sermon on the Mount. Like when you give what you do to, to people around you, you are doing unto God. And what you do unto God, you're doing to people around you. Um, and that's exactly what we're called to live into in the kingdom. Um, yeah. Cool. Sure. Okay. Oh, that's Great. <laughs> um, all right, I'll take the next one. Stretch break real fast, everybody. Woo! Okay. <laughs> Great. Uh, okay, so my question is, apart from faith in Scripture, how do we know there is a heaven? What is the most compelling part of Scripture or testimony to a life after death? So, the heaven question. Um, I'll start off by saying, if you're looking to more to, if you're looking to read more about heaven, quite frankly, there's like not a lot of details about it, but because <laughs> a huge part of that is that faith does come into play. And I would argue that like Jesus, when we believe in Jesus and we believe in his words, we're believing in all of his words and it's faith in all that he has to say. And so when he talks about heaven, it's faith that that is a reality as well. Um, and just some like compelling scripture for you guys to think about is like, okay, reading Revelation, that talks a lot about like no more tears, like no more hunger, no more thirst, like being at the throne and angels and just like imagery of what that, like visions of what that could look like. But again, like the concreteness of that is not set in stone or whatever, but, and also looking at John and Matthew and just about how Jesus talks about kingdom of heaven and that coming and what that will look like. And as a staff the other day, we talked about talked about the story of Lazarus. And just real quick, Lazarus was this woman Mary's brother, and he was sick, and Jesus got word that he was sick, but he didn't rush to the scene. And Lazarus died and was buried, and then Jesus got there, and Mary came to him being like, you're too late, Lazarus died, he's been dead four days, 
And he, like Jesus says to her, like, don't worry. I'm hugely paraphrasing. He says, don't worry. <laughs> don't worry, Mary. It's okay. um, <laughs> um, Lazarus will rise. And she says, I know he'll rise. He'll rise in the end. Like, I believe that. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> um, you don't have to wait till the end. I am right now. I am right now, resurrection and life, the one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live. And this is Jesus looks to the heavens and like prays to God saying, let Lazarus live like as evidence of this. And he rises and he lives. And so like I think that's a compelling story of life after death. Like you see that is a picture beyond Jesus of death and resurrection into life. And I think a huge point of this is that heaven is not just a place that we go to, but it is a reality that we can see and experience now. Um, you see that in this story of like Jesus praying to heaven, but also you see it happening, of heaven coming. And Jesus says, I am right now. Like, those who believe in me will live right now. And like we can point to scripture, I think, that talks about a new creation um, and ideas about heaven, but I think the story that God is telling with scripture is more about how much he loves us and how much he loves this place and these people and wants to redeem that now. And that we get to see that now. Um, I think the Bible in a way can be misinterpreted as a whole of like, God created the world, it got messed up, there's a bunch of chaos, but there's something great later. And like that's honestly sometimes the idea that we have. And there is truth in that and I don't want to just say that that's like void because there is truth in this hope of heaven but you're missing a huge part about the people about us and how we're involved in the story in the midst of all that um, I'll point out just in the Lord's prayer or Jesus prayed and lived like our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven on earth as it is in heaven, like both places that we can see it, a new heaven and new earth. And I know that this question is, like, I'm assuming directed at concrete evidence of heaven and, like, how do we know, know 100% that heaven exists? And I would say, like, Jesus and his life is compelling evidence of that. Because when we believe him and we believe the other things he says and we believe in his death and his resurrection, that that covers our life, like you're believing in everything he has to say, including that about heaven. Um, and you see that just by the way that we live life with each other. And like earlier, Janie talking about the law in your heart, like living that out, loving your neighbor, giving to the poor, like the things that we do are bringing heaven to this earth. And seeing that as like part of bringing about the new creation. And then one little thing. In John 14... Jesus talks about, or he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. So in other ways, he's saying, like, don't let your heart be distressed or discouraged or worried. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And he goes on to say, you believe in God. And that's an assertion. It's not if you believe in God. He's saying, you believe in God. And then he continues to say, believe in me also. So do you believe that God is saying what he's saying and is real? Believe in me too. And then what I'm saying is real. And then he says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I not have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? 
So we believe his other promises, and we believe the validity of those, also believing that he has prepared a place for us in heaven, and that is good, and there's hope in that. There's also this huge, like, vocation for us as Christians in this life to live that out of the kingdom come now in a new creation here on earth before that. <laughs> there we go. I just, I think Brooke hit on it really well, but like this idea of the kingdom being now and not yet, heaven being now and not yet, like, like you said, it is just crashing into earth now. Mm-hmm. Um, you think of those places like some of you just got back from doing work crew or summer staff at Malibu and places like Washington Family Ranch are, are just, when you're in a church service and you just, you feel those places, I heard people call them thin places where heaven and earth are just meeting and you just, you can't explain it, but you know God's presence is overwhelmingly there. And that's what heaven is, is where God is at. Mm-hmm. And, and we have this opportunity to be a part of heaven crashing into earth right now. And, and as we talked about, like the laws written on our heart, like Brooke said, carry Jesus with us. Like church was saying with the, the, how much power the devil has, like, in comparison to Jesus, none. <laughs> and so heaven is right here with us. Um, but it's also not yet. Like there's this, this hope of this complete redemption of everything, going back to this garden-like state that creation was. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get to be part of it, which is sweet. Um, really excited about that. I, don't know. I read, read this book recently called Better Angels of Our Nature. And it wasn't a Christian book. It was just a book book <laughs> that's what they're called right yeah. anyways um, is it analog or digital <laughs> it was analog i don't so it really was a book I, yeah i held it in my hands <laughs> what is, what the is point it? is uh the better angels of our nature and really it just kind of examined throughout history thousands and thousands of years of history it looked at violence and it looked at the just incredible decrease of violence throughout history, how we now today, like the amount of violence has plummeted in comparison to, you know, the world in like the Middle Ages or whatever. Um, and even before that. And the whole time I'm reading the book, I'm like, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. But it, this book had nothing to do with Christianity, but it was just so interesting for me to be able to like the, the witness that we, I feel like that Jesus and the Christian message has transformed the world in that way and the ways in which you can see, I think that is the ways you can see kingdom, kingdom of heaven here is that I don't think that would have happened without, with just human depravity. Absolutely. And I, I was thinking about this today and I hadn't really thought about this before, but like I, a lot of times I think of like heaven just crashing to earth right now, but the hope that we do have, like George was talking about in, in the world to come. And I was remembering this, conversation I had with this kid at uh, at winter retreat last year, the student who was just, he kind of was super random. He hadn't come to anything before and he hasn't come to anything since. Um, <laughs> so maybe I didn't do a good job in that course. Um, but uh, it's, it all will make sense in a second. The conversation we're having is he's like, he's like, what if this is the only conversation that me and you ever have? This is literally what he asked. He's like, what, like, what did you do when you were an intern and you were having the realization that maybe the impact you have on some of the students' lives is only for this year that you're in, in their lives? Like, what do you do with that? Like, is that even worth it? And I mean, the Holy Spirit must have came over me or something because this is not for me. I'm not smart enough to come up with this answer. Um, but it was just, I, in the moment, I was just like, 
when Jesus is in something, he, that thing becomes eternal. And so in this conversation that me and him were having, I was literally, I was just like, hey, I believe that Jesus is right here, right now with us. And I believe this conversation we're having is now an eternal one. That God's presence here is one that just gives this an eternal lifespan. And I believe that thousands of years from now when we're with Jesus in, in eternity, we're going to be able to look back and have a conversation about this one time we were shooting hoops at winter retreat in the only time that we ever interacted on earth. So I think that that is the huge impact that we have here. And that's the hope we have in heaven. That, like, all these things are eternal. Like, these places where God is at, when we give to somebody randomly our time or money or whatever it may be, we have hope that Jesus is redeeming it and that thing is becoming eternal. And it's not just a momentary thing. It's something that goes on forever and and is a light in a dark place, which is really cool. Other question? Last one. Last one. Last one. It's me. What is the difference between discernment and judgment? I love this question mostly because I looked up the definition of discernment and, and you type it in on Google and it literally says this. Discernment is the ability to judge well. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so there's that. So there's that. <laughs> so there is no difference. Uh, so we can go home now. Um, I really wish that judgment's definition was the ability to discern well. Um, but it said that judgment is the ability to make uh, a considered decision or come to a sensible conclusion. Um, and ultimately, as I was looking at this, it just kind of came down to me that it's it's a matter of your heart. Um, when you look at discernment, I feel like discernment is more of a, uh, church was saying this yesterday when we were talking, it's more of a spiritual process between you and God. It's something that is internal. Um, it's, it's you processing a situation or looking at something and thinking, what is going to be the right decision here? What's the right process of me going into this situation or interacting with this person? Uh, where when we look at judgment, a lot of times, um, that's when we put a value on something. I think you can have a sensible judgment without becoming the judge of something, without becoming judgmental. Uh, we read uh, in Scripture, it says that Jesus is the ultimate judge. And when I hear that, it, it takes a lot of pressure off of me. But what I hear that, it says that Jesus is the one that places value on people and things. And what we read throughout Scripture is that Jesus says that we are loved. We are holy and, and dearly loved and sought after and sons and daughters in Christ. And and. He puts the value at us so high. And when we live into that, now no longer are we becoming the judge or putting value on people or situations. Rather, we can discern, is this going to be healthy for me? Is this going to be a good situation for me to enter into? Is this, is this right? Um, but we can now do that without saying, oh, like, they're below me, so I'm not going to be in a relationship with them. I think that the, the best way I can look at that is if you're, if you, if you're in a relationship that's not healthy, not the best way, but one, way to talk about it. You can look at a relationship that you're in, and if it's not healthy, you can look and say, this is not healthy, and I should probably get out of this, but it's not that I'm better than this person, or I'm devaluing this person. You can leave that situation and still know and affirm this person in the fact that they are holy loved in Jesus Christ, but that this situation is not best for you two right now, and that's discernment, and it's judgment, because <laughs> you, are, you are judging the situation, but you are not the judge of the situation. That's Jesus. He's the one that ultimately gives value um, to the person or or a situation. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, I think ultimately it's a heart thing. Um, we 
are called to to discern. And in uh, in Matthew seven, I think this is kind of where this question came from. It says, "Judge not that you are, will not be judged, for with judgment you pronounce, you will also be judged." When I look at this, when we place value on other people, we allow them to place their value on us as well. Um, I love this when it says like. Don't judge other people because when you judge other people, you so will be judged. When I go around being the judge of other people, I'm playing this comparison game. And I'm either saying they're above me and I'm below them or they're below me and I'm above them. But wherever it is, it's not healthy because it's not an accurate view of myself or them. I'm, I'm placing my own projections onto them. When in reality, um, we are called to, to see people as Christ sees them. And we are called to see ourselves as Christ sees ourselves. So if we're not seeing ourselves properly, if we're not living into uh, this place that is right with God and knowing who who he is and who we are and who the world is in, in light of that, then we become the judge ourselves and we play this mean comparison game that just takes people down and takes situations down. It's just destructive. Um, and that's kind of the hope that we have in, 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 in Jesus as him as judge because he's redeeming all things and building things up. Uh, when in our nature, a lot of times we'll... Uh, break things down to build ourselves up where Jesus is like I'm gonna build everything up and you're gonna come along with it which is really cool to me anything else to add to that um I'm in the I used to live in a fraternity when I was here at UW and all me too uh, you did too um <laughs> what, what? I, I remember hearing all the time like Ryan don't don't judge me as you know guys were maybe drinking or doing something that they, you know, didn't think was maybe right. And don't judge me. Like when someone tells you that, like I remember like sinking or like melting to the ground thinking, man, this guy is like calling, like calling you out. I don't know. It was really tough for me to hear something like that. Um, And like right after Jesus says, do not judge, you too will be judged. He says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. Uh, and basically what he's telling us to do is like, uh, discern, like, I, does anyone know, can anyone translate that verse for me real quick before I continue on? Do not throw your pearls to pigs or do not give dogs what is sacred. Gotcha. Cool. Um, you want to repeat that? Oh yeah. Don't throw that which is valuable to that which won't appreciate. Right, right. Um, <laughs> That who it's not the same. Does that mean like if a friend of yours who is a Christian is doing something that you know Jesus would probably not have that person do? Does that mean you can't say something to that person because you're judging them if you're if you're telling them they're doing something wrong? I don't think that that means that. I think we're we're called to you know lift other people up in their uh, journey in Christ, and uh, I think that there are things that we all and through reading the Bible and looking at the guidelines that Jesus has given us, we all see things that are pro- like. In Jesus' eyes, not good things, right? That doesn't mean that we can't tell anyone when we think they're doing something wrong. And obviously, that's all in love. That's all in love, you know? Having a relationship with that person and really wanting the best for that person, not just wanting to, like, call people out, you know? Uh, having the right heart when when having a conversation with someone about maybe what they are doing wrong or ways in which they can improve uh, is important. Yeah. keep Definitely keep your heart in a good spot before you just, like... You suck at this. You're doing this. So to make good judgments, you have to have good discernment. So yeah. there you go. Practice discerning. Um, but yeah, I think a big part of it, and ultimately with everything that we've kind of talked about, and I would love for you guys to kind of weigh in on this as well, 
we just need to seek out God more, seek out Jesus more. <laughs> like, the more we know God, the more we know who he is, the more that we we can live into that truth, um, that demons will not have power over us, that we will freely be able to give, that we will be able to live into this law, that it will be written on our hearts because we know this God who is who has made us with that law on our hearts, um, that we will be able to live within the hope of heaven. Um, I just feel that, that we just need Jesus more. And what I'm hearing throughout this conversation, well, everything that we said is like, man, we just, we just need to come into God's presence and acknowledge his presence so much more. I need to do that. That's what I'm convicted of tonight. Any other thoughts? Do I get the last word? Wow. You want it. All right. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, we heard Jesus say, ask, seek, and knock. When we ask questions like this, I believe we're engaging that experience of asking, seeking, and knocking. Questions that may, may not have an easily answerable, tidy, resolved solution. Um, but know that I hope that what University Ministries is, is that it is always a safe place for you to ask these types of questions that might be a little bit messy. We need to do it because that's what it means to ask and to seek and to knock. And that's the Christian life. We're going to be doing this for as long as we seek to follow Jesus. Okay? Because we're going to be doing that for a long time, let me pray for us as the, as the worship team comes up and we'll finish off with a couple more songs before we have some treats. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have given us your word, that you have given us minds that are alive, that you've given us each other, that we don't have to be alone when we ask these questions and when we seek answers. Uh, we need your Spirit's help when we come and we ask these questions. Uh, we ask, God, that you would, you would be uh, daily leading us towards the truth and that we might graciously lean into that uh, as people who do uh, discern more than we judge who know your power more than the devil's power, who are, are shaped by your law that shapes our consciousness that positions us towards you. So God, be enthroned on the praises of your peoples. We sing a few more songs and as we fellowship together uh, throughout the night, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, you guys. You've been very attentive. That's a long time to sit and listen to a lot of words. Give yourselves a hand. Thanks. <laughs>